like you to turn once again to the second portion of the scripture that we just read. First chapter of Ephesians and at verse 15. chapter 1 and verse 15 for this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers for this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and in love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now Paul here, as he begins this letter, does so in a spirit of praise and thankfulness himself. He opens it in the usual way in this of salutation, all the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's talking to a people who are <coughs> new converts. They were heathens, unbelievers. Ephesus was that city who praised the goddess Diana. And there Remember the episode with Paul when he was in Ephesus? Uh, the girl was converted and they cried out all day long, Great is Diana, the Queen of the Ephesians, the Goddess of the Ephesians. And so, having overcome that, Paul planted a church there in Ephesus. Today, if you look at Ephesus, it used to be a, a coastal port because of the change in the coastline and the, the different degrees of uh, water levels around the earth. The port of Ephesus is quite a long way from the sea and the coast. Now, I've never been there, but at a hotel you have to walk quite a long way from the old port to get to the actual seaside. And so here's Paul writing to this church, a bustling seaport in, as it was then, Asia Minor, what today is Turkey is the same area today where you see all the Syrians and the Iraqis all trying to cross to get to the island of Kos. That's exactly where Ephesus is, just beside that point where they are trying to get into Europe by crossing the Kos, which for some reason is in mainland Europe, whereas Turkey is classed more or less as being part of Asia. But just Paul writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus. And he's so caught up in his spirit of praise and adoration that the verses we have there from 3 to 14 are all one sentence, although in the English it's broken down into phrases with commas. In the Greek there's no commas, no full stops, 
Nothing, just one long sentence of praise. And the same thing applies from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. There is verse 23. One long anthem of praise for what God has done and his desire to see the people at Ephesus involved in the work of the gospel and in the praising of God for what he has done for them. Well, the first thing we can say about this chapter, we, we ask, what does Paul here mean when he says to the saints, what is a saint? We need to know, because the early Christians professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they became very active in the defense and the promotion of the gospel. If you would look to look at the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Lord Jesus Christ, as before his departure, says, you are to be my witnesses. And that's what they became. They became the Lord's witnesses in their own day and generation and proclaimed the gospel wherever they went. We have to examine ourselves to see whether we are still engaged in that same work of being witnesses for what Christ has done for us. Do we tell what the Lord has done for our souls to others, our family, our friends, our workmates. I know we live in the day of political correctness, but we still have the liberty to proclaim what the Lord has done and to demonstrate what the Lord has done in our lives. <coughs> and also, this word Christian at that time, the New Testament times, wasn't a word of approval, affirmation. It was a word of abuse. If you go back, and again, think of Acts chapter 11, verse 25-26, that they were called, the believers were called Christians first in this place. And uh, the word Christian, ekros, you can always sense that the guttural sound of the Greek word was the word of abuse. These Christians, as people would say today, who do they think they are? What are they believing in? They're turning us aside from our own interests and they're spoiling the lives we want to lead. And it would have been the same thing at that time there, uh, when Paul and Barnabas were there uh, proclaiming God's <coughs> word in Asia Minor. And so we need to know what being a Christian means. Now, Christians have impacted society since the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his own people. And a Christian, first of all, is a saint. That's what the word here says to the saints. That's what a Christian is. He's a saint. The Greek word again is hagios, which means holy. And so Christians were meant to be holy and harmless, like their Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot say we are undefiled because we are defiled. As for us, the Lord was holy, harmless, and undefiled, so we ought to be holy and harmless in the day in which we live, and to be his witnesses. But a Christian is also someone who is cleansed outwardly. A saint is someone who is cleansed by the Lord. It's something that is done to him. We, we don't become Christians because of the family we're born into or the church we belong to. We become Christians because the Holy Spirit has come 
and indwelt us and given us the ability to believe, to turn our life around. It's not something we do in ourselves and of ourselves. It's not a strength that we have. It is something that happens to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when Peter was asked, who do you say that I am? The Lord asked the question. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <coughs> and the Lord says to Peter, flesh and blood, your own ingenuity and, and thought processes have not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. So even the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, we profess him to be the Christ and our Christ, <coughs> that's a given. That's something that's given to us. It's imparted to us in our understanding, it's imparted to our emotions, and it renews the wills whereby we walk as Christians in this life. Now, the outward cleansing is something that changes our status with God in heaven. It doesn't change us immediately from being perhaps unloving to very loving people. It doesn't change us from those who are very much in the world to very much out of the world and in the church. It's a standing which changes in our relationship to God. It's a, it's a situation which occurs because God does something to us. He, he redeems us. Redeems us by the blood of Christ. So that we are no longer children of wrath, uh, but children of God. He redeems us by the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ had to be shed for us to be redeemed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But without the shedding of blood, we cannot be redeemed by God. Again, remember the Old Testament ceremonial practices. There was a man came to the temple with a small donkey. And he wanted to keep it, but it was the firstborn, so it should have been sacrificed. And it was redeemed by a lamb. And that was the way. So that the, the ass had to be redeemed for it to live. And so we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We can live spiritually, not only in this world, but the world which is to come, because God has redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Again, his forgiveness is because of what Christ has accomplished for us and for our salvation. <coughs> and he does it again, not because of what we are, because of, because of what Christ is and what he's accomplished. And he justifies us. And that's the great jargon word that's used in the scriptures to show that we are justified before God. Our status with God has changed. He looks at us just as the, the children's description of the word, just as if we had never sinned. As though we were totally innocent and vindicated in this sight, but we are innocent of every charge that can be laid against us, not because we have no charges to be laid against us, but because all the charges have been laid against Christ. And so we are cleansed outwardly. Our status before God has changed. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. But then we're also cleansed inwardly. And we're cleansed inwardly, as I hinted before, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us Christians. 
That's what enables us to begin starting to live holy lives. The Holy Spirit takes up his residence among us. Remember in John 14, the Lord said, I must go away. And if I go away, I will send you another comforter. If the Lord Jesus Christ had remained on earth even until now, his, his sphere of influence would have been very limited. He would, he would have to be in one place at one time. In the same way as we're limited as to where we can be and, and where we can go, where we can be seen or heard, although in today's world, world of uh, the internet and everything, it, it can be spread wide, but the physical body of Christ will only be in one place. But the Holy Spirit, when he comes, indwells every believer. The Holy Spirit of God is in everyone who's a Christian. That's what makes us Christians. And so we're cleansed inwardly by his indwelling. He cleanses us by giving us new desires. So that our desires are not for this world, our ambitions are not to progress in this world, to make a name for ourselves and to, to achieve fame and fortune. Our desires are now spiritual. The spiritual that we might be one with Christ. That our lives might be hid with God in Christ Jesus. That is our desire. That's our desire for our children. When we are of the world before we're converted, all we want for our children is their prosperity. We want them to progress. We want them to get on in the world. We send them away to universities. We send them away to colleges. And we remove them from that influence in the home and by the fireside where they know family worship and they know the family altar and they come to the means of grace. I'm not saying it's wrong for our children to, to want to progress and get on in the world. That's the way of the world. But we're not of the world. And we should give our children this other world view. That fame and fortune in this world is not what life is about. This life is a preparation for the life that we hope to live in the world that is to come. Not only for time, but also for eternity. And so, we have new desires. We have new hopes. That life doesn't end in the grave. That there is a, a life beyond the grave. There is a life which shall never end. In the, in the fellowship of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. And all these are ours. Every Christian then is a saint. He's cleansed outwardly in our, in our relationship with God. He's cleansed inwardly when our own nature is changed. The old man is dead. The old man without the Holy Spirit is dead. The new man indwelt by the Holy Spirit has been born. We are a new creation. That doesn't mean the old nature is dead. As I said, it's, it's a journey we're on. A journey from when we were unconverted, when we were perhaps blasphemers and liars and drunkards. It's a journey from there to the time when we were presented faultless before God's presence with exceeding joy. But it's a line. Our journey is a line. We don't go up in steps making progress. It's a line along which we travel. And along that line there will be successes, there will be disappointments, there will be failures, but we continue traveling. And God sometimes uses the failures and the disappointments, 
much more in making progress in our spiritual lives than the successes that we achieve along life's journey. And so all these are true of the Christian who is a saint. Full of faith. Loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not like Thomas who is disloyal. Who is faithless and, and unbelieving. The Lord says to Doubting Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be, don't be faithless, but be believing. Don't be without faith, but be believing and, and be loyal to that faith and, and, be, and be as one who, who nurtures that faith and causes it to grow in your life and, and by what you say and what you do and where you go. <clears throat> so, what makes us Christians? It's the Holy Spirit who makes us Christians. It's believing in the Christian truth that makes us Christians. See, a Christian is not merely a nice man. A man who used to be a bad man and now is a nice man. A Christian is someone who believes certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us Christians. Christ himself is not a Christian. A Christian is somebody who worships Christ. And if we want to be classed as Christians, that is the first demonstration of who we are. We worship Christ. We adore Him. We fall before Him in wonder and love and praise. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is everything to us. He is our all in all. That's what makes us Christians. That's what differentiates us from the world in which we live. And so, the things that we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes us different, is we believe initially in the Incarnation. He was in heaven, he was in glory, but now, 2,000 years ago, he came to earth. He came to earth as the God-man. God became man and lived on this earth for 33 or so years. We believe that implicitly. It's that which gave birth to the Church of Christ in the world today and will continue because Christ himself is not only the founder, he is not only the builder, but he is the protector of it. And it will be kept throughout the end of the ages until the time when he returns. So the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity who existed in fellowship with the Holy Spirit and, and the Father existed long before the world began. If you read through the beginning chapters of Proverbs, you will see there some understanding of what I mean by the fact that God had a, or Christ had a pre-existence. And he comes to this earth, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us to under that law that we might receive the adoption of sons. He came to this earth to create a new people. Even as God took Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and made out of Jacob's children a new nation, so Christ in the spiritual sense comes to this earth to make a new nation. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he is the one who is, who is raising a pe people and establishing a people who will be with them throughout the endless ages of glory. It's this wonderful picture, this this given to us in scripture 
that Christ is establishing kingdom he does against in John chapter 14 I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also that's the great end that's the hope that we have that's the desire Christ has for us in becoming man he could not have achieved it from heaven he had to come to earth to achieve it by dying for the sins of his people and so taking away the barrier or the controversy between God and man when God created Adam there was no controversy they walked together in the cool of the garden every day but Adam caused a controversy man caused a controversy and within a few verses in Genesis 3 we see God bringing a remedy to that controversy the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent the promise of the Redeemer the Saviour is made there right at the beginning of Scripture and it continues and a greater revelation of what's going to happen is, is shown to us throughout the Old Testament and culminates in the New Testament revelation of the Gospel but that is the incarnation and we believe it implicitly we believe in the virgin birth we believe in the resurrection of Christ the physical literal resurrection we believe in the ascension of Christ we believe in all the miracles that, that he accomplished we believe that he raised Lazarus from the dead all these things we believe implicitly because of Christ and who he is we believe it not as something we can prove but because of who Christ is he is our Lord he is our God he is the one whom we worship and it would be very strange if if Christ was something we could understand and we could relate to in a way that we relate to one another <clears throat> he is wholly different to us in his being in his wisdom in his power, in his holiness all these things he is different to us that's what makes him God and that's what makes us his people and that's what enables us to worship him and adore him and so the incarnation we believe in we believe in the virgin birth we believe in the miracles we believe especially in the vicarious death and sufferings of Christ what's that word vicarious means it means something one does for somebody else he died for us so that we will never die the spiritual death he had to suffer there on the cross the sufferings he endured for us the pains of hell overtaking him we will never know that because Christ suffered for us he did it so that we his people would never have to suffer it's the, the prospect of those who are out of Christ but no prospect of any of those who have received and rested in Christ alone we are his and our lives are hid <laughs> with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ and so we believe all these things we trust the Lord for all these things for us and in us we believe also as I said in the resurrection and Pentecost in the Holy Spirit being sent when we look again at scripture we find here in the chapter we've been reading that verses 3 to 14 have been verses which contain to a large extent doctrine that's the way Paul very often works 
he wants to exhort people to do something for, so the first of all he, he lays down the doctrine of, of the great truths of scripture and then from verse 50 to the end he applies that doctrine to the Christian life and that's what he's doing here he's saying give yourself two tests this word here for this reason it used to be written wherefore wherefore because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to all the saints what we see here is Paul says it elsewhere as you come to your communion season you apply these tests to yourself you, you read chapter 11 of 1st Corinthians and it tells you to examine yourselves whether you walk according to your to faith whether you walk circumspectly or whether you love the brethren and what Paul says here in much more seed form for this reason he's exhorting them for this reason because I have heard of, it, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to all the saints Cease not to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers continually. And Paul here is saying, give yourself these two tests. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have love to the saints, to your, to your fellow believers? Faith in the Lord Jesus, not believing in some God. Some nebulous God that is, every person seems to mention. The Jews believe in a God. Islam believes in a God. Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons believe in a God. Hindus believe in a God. Buddhists, I don't know what they, they believe in. Power of good and evil. But as Christians we worship Christ he is our Lord he is our God he is the only one that we will know in glory and God is a spirit and we will not see a spirit Christ his resurrection rose with a human body he said touch me and see this is flesh and bones Let's me see that this flesh and bones that I have. And he actually shared food with them to show that he was an actual human being. And so Christ in his resurrection form is still a human being. As, as one of the professors in the college, Robbie Duncan, said, the dust of the earth has ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have here in the incarnation part of the of the the Lord's condescension towards the children of men. He continues to inhabit a human body. In his exaltation and being, his being raised, he does not cease to be man. In his humiliation, when he became man, he does not cease to be God. So he's the God-man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And so Christ has the preeminence. He is are all in all. Not like these other religions of the world. We are totally and utterly different to every other religion in the world. 
we believe in Christ as God, as Christ as the only Saviour of men and women, as Christ as the God who became man. And no other religion believes to the extent we do that Christ is our Lord and Saviour. There are other beliefs, there are other traditions, there are other ideas which they carry with them. But none has this. That's what makes us different. That's why people hate the Christian religion so much. They know we're different. We, they know we worship Christ. What you see in Middle East today, Islam and every religion throughout the world persecuting Christians, is because they're Christians and no other reason. They're not bad people. They don't go about abusing their children. They don't persecute their neighbours. All that is done to them for no other reason but because they are believers, they are Christians, they're worshipping peacefully in their own churches. That doesn't happen here. We live in a country where we have the liberty to worship who we want and what we want. And we have the peace to be able to do that. And that's why in our country so many sometimes wish there could be some sort of law, but that, but that is not what Christ wants us. He wants us to persuade men. That's what Paul says. I want you to persuade men, not use the arms and, and the means of, of warfare, but use mental persuasion to persuade men and women that we worship a living and a loving God. And so here we have that living and loving God whom we believe in and whom we put our trust in. And just one final word on this section. Paul, when he's talking about Jesus Christ, he refers to him here not as the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ or even Jesus. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And there you have the divine nature and there you have the human nature in those two words, the Lord Jesus. They're at the opposite ends of, of a line you can almost say and they hold up the rest of his ministry. He is the Lord, he is Jehovah. He is Jesus, the man who was born of a woman in this world. And he is the God-man, the only possible person who could reconcile us to God. Not made in the nature of angels, but after the seed of Abraham. Whereby he could take our nature, he could come to this earth, live the life we're living, and then die the death that we die. Only he died the death, he died for our salvation. The death of the cross, the accursed death of the cross. But in, in dying that, he achieved what he set out to do. To save a people for himself. To save all the people his father had given them and lose none of them. Not one shall be lost. And so he came to achieve that and he has achieved that. And that's the great guarantee. We're told here, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. Not what we will do or be done or plan to do or hope to do the guarantee of our salvation is the Holy Spirit indwelling us when we live our lives here sometimes we fall as we go along that way but if we are believers the Holy well if the Holy Spirit is given to us he is never withdrawn God's gifts are without repentance and the Holy Spirit is the ultimate gift he can give us without repentance it will never be withdrawn from us. His presence will be veiled. 
If we grieve the Holy Spirit, He will withdraw His, His, His known presence from our lives, but never withdraw. And as soon as we come back into true fellowship, He'll, he'll come in with us again, He'll, he'll enlighten our hearts, He'll, he'll enlighten our minds and, and spirits, and we will once again know the hope and the prayer that the psalm writer complained of, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord. All these are things the Holy Spirit does to us because he's the Holy Spirit of God. And we are Christ's children born by the Spirit he purchased by his death on the cross. So the Holy Spirit is Christ's purchased possession for us. For himself and death for us. He died. When I go, I will send to you another comforter. He came because Christ died and rose again from the dead. Because of what he accomplished for us on the cross. And also, your love to all the saints. A Christian will love all the saints. Not only those who are pleasant and clever and those who are learned or, or lovely, but even the unlovely, even the unlearned. Make no difference. Let there be no difference between those, let there be no partiality, I think it says in the authorised version. But esteem one another better than you esteem yourselves. And walk in love, and walk in joy, and walk in peace. And walk as those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't need to ask the whereabouts of a person, although we do, we want to know who he belongs to. But uh, you don't, shouldn't want to ask where he's from or what school he went to or what university he achieved or what degrees he had. should make no difference to a Christian. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Yes, we want to know out of have curiosity or even a desire to know the family connections as to who they belong to. But that's part of our, our own curiosity. But never in a sense whereby we can gain some sort of superiority over them by looking down upon their achievements and, and placing our attainments greater than theirs. And then Paul says here he prays constantly. Give thanks for them, for to the Father of glory. Now, there were other things I wanted to say about that, but I was in the reading of this chapter, it suddenly appeared to me what Paul was praying for. I hadn't intended to mention this, and I'll do it only just briefly. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Some things we can learn by wisdom by studying the scriptures. Other things have to be by revelation. Not what's written. What's written we can look at and we can study and we can discuss and we can learn wisdom by that. But others have to come by revelation. There are some things hard to be understood. I'm sure we've all experienced it. We're reading the scripture and suddenly we see for the first time something we never saw before that was there. Something never been discussed anywhere else. But suddenly we see something that's been revealed to us. And that's what Paul here is praying for. Not only the wisdom we get from the scriptures, but the revelation that comes directly from him. Having your eyes enlightened, 
He's praying that our eyes will be enlightened. You know, again, your catechism, revealing to you your sin and misery, enlightening your mind, the eyes of your heart, enlightening your minds in the knowledge of Christ, showing who He is, that we might be broadened in our view of who Christ is, of, of His beauty, of His winsomeness, of, of what He's accomplished. We know some of the, the words there that He talks about, about his, his incarnation, about how we are justified, about the vicarious death. But these are just words. There's so much beneath those words. So much being written about it. We live in the day when we are on our iPads more than we are in the scriptures and more than we are in the many books that have been written. Many of the books that contain the greatest blessings are not on the web and they're not on your iPads or computers. They're still in soft covers or hard covers, which line the, the libraries of many of the men who are preaching the gospel. Words that have been out of print for many centuries and which are studied for the edification of the saints. So he's caused you your hearts to be enlightened, the eyes of your hearts, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you and what the riches of his glorious inheritance are. Only the hope. Can you express the hope? Each and every one, Peter says, should be able to, to express the hope of your salvation to anyone who asks you. Do we rehearse that? Do we, do we know what our hope is? If someone asks us, why are you a Christian? Can we express that hope? Can we give that answer to, to someone else? Can we reveal to, to someone else what, what the Holy Spirit has worked in us? And I think it's First Peter 3 and 15. Be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Can we do that? The Holy Spirit, Paul is praying that we will be able to do that. That we will be able to be a good witness in our own day and generation. That you might know the riches of the glorious inheritance. Our inheritance is in Christ. Our inheritance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Our inheritance is not some earthly inheritance. It's an inheritance which is with God in Christ Jesus. The inheritance which is, means that we shall be with God and with Christ throughout the endless ages of glory. Being with Him and knowing His fellowship and knowing His peace and his joy and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe and there you have it this wonderful wonderful prayer that Paul makes he prays for us earnestly praying to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and what's just one final word he's not praying to Christ he's not praying to the Holy Spirit Paul himself is praying, as he says here, to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Jesus Christ is the glory, so God can be called the Father of glory. And these are just some thoughts on this wonderful chapter. I'm sure men of, of more accomplishment than I could probably preach a, a sermon on every one of these verses that we've been 
looking at this evening. So we have this wonderful, wonderful gospel. We need it for ourselves. Others who are not saved need it. And if we don't tell them about it, and nobody else is going to do so. As I mentioned this morning, in the prayer or whether in the sermon, we've known and experienced great blessings in this community in the last 60 or so years. The vestiges of that revival are perhaps still with one or two of the people who are still alive and knew what happened then. Well, let's pray that the Lord will once again in his power bring such times back to us. We need them. We see our numbers declining. We see churches being amalgamated, perhaps not here, but on the mainland, a lot of them. And the only reason we as a church are, are still increasing is that others are coming in to join us. They see the paucity of their, of their own church and <coughs> the belief of their own leaders. And they're coming to a church which still proclaims the unsearchable riches of Christ in the fullness of the revelation of God. May that be something that we never lose and that we will protect with the utmost of our abilities in our different places in our usefulness in the church. Well then let us then conclude our worship singing to God's praise in Psalm 91. Psalm 91. He that doth in the secret place of the Most High reside, and the shade of him that is the Almighty shall abide. To the end of the verse, Mark 4, this is four stanzas to God's praise, and standing to sing.
thou may grace, mercy, and peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, who rest on you and abide in you now and always. Amen.